From KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide, this is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Hey, Nick. Hey, Lindsay. Hey, Taylor. Hi, Taylor. Lindsay, congratulations. On the strike? On ending the strike. The writers have ended the strike. I know. And people are saying we won. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sorry that you're still on strike and we will be out there in solidarity with you. Actors and writers work so hard. You're going to still do Bike to Strike, right, Taylor? Yeah, we still are. We're doing that on Thursdays. In fact, this Thursday, it's kind of a congratulations ride for the writers, but an opportunity for those writers that have been biking the strike to support the actors. We're going to meet at Warner Brothers at 9 a.m. on Thursday. Very good. Well, we got some good interviews lined up today. What's on the agenda? We have an interview with Sarah Lind, who's the co-executive director of Open Plans New York City, about the end of parking mandates in New York City. I mean, what's shocking about that, of course, is that they had them in the first place. I've been hearing that a lot. There were not parking mandates in the densest part of Manhattan. There's a lot of single family zoning. It wouldn't come to mind thinking of the city. Right. But it's exciting. This is a movement. I think it actually started in Minneapolis, but it's spreading. And I think people are realizing. I highly recommend the book Paved Paradise. And I stumbled onto it thanks to Taylor's interview on Bike Talk. It really explains everything. Henry is great. Henry Gabar. It's a fast, fun read. Hilarious. Sarah has read it and also loves it. So that will come first. Then we have an interview with Craig De La Pena, who's known as the New England's Rail Trail Warrior, who has converted all of these miles of old rail trail to biking and walking trails. And we're going to talk about his Golden Spike Conference coming up, where all these bike advocates and trail advocates will be honored, and how this 104-mile trail is being built from Boston to Northampton. He sells houses that are right on that trail. That's his specialty? Yeah, that's right. He's a real estate broker who specializes in getting people homes along bike and walk trail. You know, it used to be that realtors sold houses on golf courses. Now they do it on bike trails. I love that. Yeah, he points out in the interview that people who are buying houses are changing. They're younger and they want something different. It's just so beautiful. And how amazing to walk outside of your house and be on a bike trail. And then we have your interview, Taylor. With Eric Berger, right? Eric is a science writer, really a space writer, and he writes for RS Technica. He's a really wonderful writer, and he wrote about the tour of Spain, because I was just in Spain, which no one asked me about. You guys haven't asked me at all about that. You just got back from Spain? Yes. Thank you, Lindsay. I thought you'd never ask. (laughs) How was it? It was really wonderful. I got back last night. I'm a little bit jet lagged. I was up this morning about 4.30 in the morning. One of the things I noticed is that Spain and Portugal still have plenty of cars. It is not a mecca for just bikes and walking. There's a very robust automobile culture there, but they have carved out a little bit of space for people to ride safely along the streets. There's bike lanes. They are separated by a three or four inch lift from the roadway. So there's just a little bit of safety. And also another thing that I noticed, truck side guards. That was part of the problem that killed the American diplomat, Sarah Langenkamp. But in Spain and Portugal, every truck has a side guard. 
every single truck, whether it would be a big semi, a flatbed, or even a large van that had space between the wheels, they had a side guard to protect just the kind of crash that killed Sarah Langenkamp. Now, when I'm back in the States, I see all the time that trucks do not have these side guards. Yeah, it seems like the trucking industry has had an undue influence on the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration. Just in the news today, there was some news about Sarah Langenkamp, the American diplomat that was killed last August. The man who was driving the truck that killed her pled guilty to driving carelessly. It was not the vehicular manslaughter, which is what Sarah's family was hoping for, and I think a lot of safe street advocates were hoping for. The punishment that Mr. Martinez is going to get is maximum 150 hours of public service, possible six-month driver's license suspension, and a maximum $2,000 fine. And it's one of the things that we have to look at as safe street advocates about proper punishment for people that are involved in these kinds of crashes. So that's a systemic problem. Yeah. Beacon is the name of the company that employed the driver. And a spokesman for Beacon was quoted as saying, this was a tragic accident. And we talk about that all the time, about changing our verbiage to include the word crash and cut the word accident because it wasn't an accident. He turned right across a legal bike lane. She was riding in the bike lane. The truck did not have a side guard on it. He said that he didn't see her, but he obviously could have seen her as he approached her. And then he turned right across her path and killed her. I think a lot of people might have trouble with the idea that something's not an accident when somebody didn't mean to. But as you're saying, the bike path was designed so that somebody who's in a truck turning right can easily drag somebody under their truck if there's no side guards, which there aren't. And so the whole thing is right. designed for that to happen. That and it was a bike stripe. It's just a strip of paint on the side of the road that creates three, four feet for a bicycle to ride, but it is not protected and it did not protect Sarah. I think the striping and the infrastructure obviously comes up a lot. And it was interesting. There was an event this weekend at my house for Streets for All, which is an advocacy organization in Los Angeles that advocates for safe streets and better bike infrastructure and pedestrian improvements. And out of the conversation that included three elected officials, a state senator, a state assembly member, and a city council member, there was a real realization that we need to fix the safety, right? And what are the state bills we can do in California to fix the problems? And I'll tell you the two Two problems that just kept coming up are the classifications. Caltrans is the state agency that does our highways and their classifications, they're horrific. They're like four classifications and each one is deadlier than the next. They classify engineering and design of bike lanes in this class one, class two, class three and class four. And none of them are safe for children. Personally, I don't think any of them are safe for anybody. But what if our engineering standards were safe for children? What would that look like? And what if we ask engineers, don't engineer a street for cars. How do you make the cars safe rather than how do you squeeze a bike lane into a car street? So that was sort of interesting. And then the other thing that came up was council member Katie Yaroslavsky, who represents a lot of the West Side. She is a real bike champion. And Streets for All has also been doing a lot of work. You know, they have a PAC and a 501c4 so they can raise money for politicians. And they've really helped elect pro-bike politicians. And she got up there and she was sort of explaining that 
she has two community groups coming to her asking for bike lanes in their neighborhoods. And these community groups, I'm going to tell you, have very anti-bike reputation. And in both cases, these huge groups with total consensus have come together asking for bike lanes. One's over on 6th Street, which is sort of in Hollywood area. And the other one's in Westwood, which is right next to UCLA. Huge college campus, tons of students, right? They need mobility. You don't want them owning cars and driving. It's the last thing you need on a college campus. And she has to choose. She cannot put both of these community-advocated bike lane projects through the system at the same time because there's not enough money. And you need to apply for money. You may not get it. That adds two years to the process. A lot of us started realizing it's not just about NIMBYs backing down or electing the right politicians. It's also about cleaning up the funding and cleaning up the process. So how do we do that? Do we write a bill? Is that it? You could do quick build which I think is better. A lot of people think quick build's better. Explain what quick build is, Lindsay. It's using temporary materials and you can plop them down virtually overnight. They scrape up the paint and they repaint the street in a different configuration, drop down planters to make it super safe and you can iterate different designs. And, you know, the idea is a state bill that funds bike lanes when people want them. We're in a climate emergency. We're in a traffic crisis. What bike lane would you turn down? That sounds like you had a really positive event. So good for you. Bike people are the best people. And, you know, let me add, Streets for All is a kind of an organization that can sprout up anywhere. It raises money that then can spread that money around to politicians, where so many nonprofit bike organizations can't do that. You know, because they are a 501c3, they can't give money to politicians And another thing Streets for All is working on is a ballot measure, Healthy Streets LA, that would require the city to implement its mobility plan on every street it repaves. And that's coming up in when, March? March, yeah. Good work, Lindsay. Thank you. Let's hear your interview. Taylor, do you want to tell us what we're about to hear? Yeah, again, this is Eric Berger. He's a science writer for RS Technica, and he wrote an amazing article about the Tour of Spain and the amazing victory of American Sepkus. Normally on Bike Talk, we have bike advocates and things like that, but today we have a science writer. His name is Eric Berger, and he writes for Ars Technica. Is that correct, Eric? That's correct, yes. And he wrote the book Liftoff, which is about Elon Musk and the start of SpaceX. And so he's a science writer. But I happen to find Eric because I'm traveling around Spain, as many of our listeners know. And I happen to read an article that Eric wrote about the Vuelta a España. Eric Berger, welcome to Bike Talk. Thank you very much, Taylor. What's your interest in science, weather, and bike racing? <laughs> well, I basically have three passions, I guess, in life. Weather, space flight, and pro cycling. I love to follow the sport I have for about 20 years. I also follow bike racing, but I was barely aware of Sepp Kuss before this summer. How long have you known about him? Well, I've been kind of following the scene closely. And so if you follow the success of Roglic and Vingegaard at Yumbo Visma, you know that Sepp Kuss played this key role over the last five years as sort of their final mountain domestique and just has been really right. selfless. And so you expected him to be there. And what was really surprising to me about this is that this was his third grand tour of the season. In five months, he's rode three month-long races, which has to be incredibly <laughs> stressful for the body. Right. And as our audience knows, the Grand Tours, there are three of them, the Giro of Italia and the Tour de France and the Vuelta in España. And each of those three races are 21 days. 
And yeah. if you're a uh, domestique like Sepkus is, or maybe we should say was, you're doing a lion's share of the work. Yeah, he's just been this hard worker. And so the prospect of him actually winning the race as the story emerged over the three-week tour was really special to watch. Yeah. You mentioned in your article about the film from the 1960s, Stars and Water Carriers. Yeah. One of the things I love about cycling is that it really, from the earliest days, opened itself up to the written word. And as a writer, that appeals to me. And then over time, of course, video came in and now we have this wonderful coverage full time. But in the 1960s, there was this great film made about the Giro. Eddie Merckx was there and he was one of the stars. It was focused a lot about the domestiques too, the workers. They were called the water carriers. And it just was a really nice historical look at the sport from 50 years ago. And also a very poignant look at the hard work that these domestiques do who are essential to winning this, the races. Right. You know, maybe people don't fully understand about bike racing, but it is a team sport. And I thought your article captured so much of the beauty of the pain and suffering that goes into that team sport. Yeah. If you look at cyclists, you see that they're very thin, right? Um, and so <laughs> they have pushed their bodies to the absolute limit in terms of an endurance sport. And that just takes an incredible amount of work and persistence and dedication. And so... I really admire that. Right. You're a science writer by trade, and you wrote the book Liftoff, which I already mentioned, but you also have Space City Weather, which is like a weather blog. Is that what that is? Yeah, I live in Houston, Texas, and so road cycling here is not great. <laughs> it's really hot in the summer, and there are lots of congested roads, and there's not the greatest respect for cyclists. But there is lots of interesting weather, and so one of my jobs is to cover weather for a site called Space City Weather, and it's pretty popular. So what about writing about weather and writing about science and NASA and rockets got you interested in bike racing? In some ways, interest in cycling precedes all the other stuff. I've been following cycling since the turn of the century. Like a lot of Americans, I got interested in the sport because of Lance Armstrong. Sure. And then endured all of that different fallout. And so it's been kind of an interesting time to be an American cycling fan because there have not been these great general classification hopes, right, for two decades. Right. And so you sort of had your wins here and there by cyclists that you've celebrated, but all of the great tour riders have been from Slovenia or Great Britain or South Africa or wherever. And so, again, seeing this American rise up and assume that mantle of winning one of these grand tours, especially in such an unexpected way. It was just a really special story. Certainly one of the most, I would say, as an American cycling fan, greatest stories of the last quarter century. Easily, yeah. Do you yourself ride a bike? I do. But as I say, here in Houston, Texas, I would say there's not the greatest amount of respect for cyclists on the roads. I think that's obviously a real huge issue here. Unlike in Europe, I think where it's much more of an accepted activity. If you're going to ride in Houston, you really got to ride like on the weekends, like on a Sunday morning or a Saturday morning very early. And so I have a mountain bike and I try to ride a little bit on road, mostly off road. But unfortunately, it's not a great area for that. Right. Yeah. I have been talking a little bit about the Vuelta a España while I've been here in Spain. But I wonder if you could recap for our audience a little bit about this Vuelta's brilliance and Step Kuz's story in this race and how unusual it was. I think yeah. you even said in your article that Step Kuz winning the Vuelta a España was like the center for the Kansas City Chiefs winning the most valuable player as opposed to Patrick Mahomes. Yeah, I think that's right. When you came into this race, this was the third Grand Tour of the season, and there were three main favorites. Two of them were on this Netherlands team, Jumbo Visma, 
Jonas Vingegaard and Roglic, Sepp Kuss was basically their helper, their best mountain domestique. They're linemen, basically, right? Yeah, they're linemen. Basically he was the guy blocker. who did the blocking. They were the quarterbacks and he was the offensive lineman. And then there was another rider, a Belgian named Remco Evenepoel for a different team. And so it was basically the two Jumbo riders versus Remco. And early in the race, Jumbo sent Sepkus up early in a breakaway where he gained a few minutes of time. And it was thought that over time, for various reasons, this would come back, including a time trial. But then Sepkus rode a pretty good time trial and Remco Evenepoel had a very bad day and basically dropped out of the race for the general classification. So all of a sudden, the top three riders in the race were all from Jumbo Visma. And, and just so, so Eric, our audience knows, the time trial is when each rider rides by themselves against the clock. So they yeah. don't have any teammates to help them out. Yeah. And Sepkus is not a particularly good time trialist. So he's never really tried or trained for the discipline. It doesn't matter. Like he's not in these grand tours to win the overall title. So he doesn't have to perform in the time trial. Usually he takes it as a rest day and rides pretty slowly. In this case, he sort of did his best time trial and he was within about a minute of his teammates. And that was enough to keep him in the overall lead. And then what happened after that? Because that's what's really amazing. And again, for our audience, our audience is split between people who listen to us on radio and also people who download us at biketalk.org. So some people understand the intricacies of bicycle racing, but some don't. But what was so amazing about stage 13? Yeah, so the real drama then in the last week of the race became would the stars, the absolute stars of the sport. So you have Jonas Vingegaard and Primoz Roglic for Jumbo Visma, who are two of the three best Grand Tour riders in the world, right? They are the absolute stars of the sport. And they were a minute or two behind Sepp Kuss, who was a domestique, nominally their helper. But they were the three best riders in the race at this point. So who would win? Would the great superstars of the sport sort of submerge their egos long enough to allow Sepkus to have this moment of glory? And over the last several stages of the race, it was not at all clear that that would happen because those great stars wanted to go out and win races each day, but then not take too much time so that Sepkus was put behind them. And so it was this great drama playing out. And ultimately, one of the riders came within eight seconds of Sepkus before they backed off a little bit. It was really poignant to watch too, because in the end, they did sort of decide that Sepp Kuss should win. And Sepp Kuss was really strong. If he'd been just this little bit weaker, one or both of them would have said, well, he didn't really deserve to win it. And they would have gone ahead. It was just great drama. Right. And Rojelet had a real reason to want to win. He's mm -hmm. won the Vuelta a España three times. And if he wins it a fourth time, he's then a record breaker, right? Yeah, and I, he's like 33 years old, so he's really nearing the end of being a peak rider for these overall races. I'm not saying this was his last chance, but this was one of his last chances to get that record of most wins in the Vuelta. And so it was really a big sacrifice for him, especially because Jonas Vingegaard, who's won the last two Tours de France, so he's the best overall rider in the world at this point. He knew that he was going to win more tours probably and that he would want Sepkus by his side. But for Roglic, it was a little bit harder, right? Because right. There was more on the line and time was fleeting. And so it was really nice to see them come together. You asked Taylor about my interest in cycling. And I think really there's just so much drama and so much intrigue in every race and every day because you've got 180 riders all doing different things in the peloton. Some are going ahead, some are behind, some are in different positions, but they're all doing like a specific job and they're all where they are for a specific reason. Maybe they've screwed up and are too far back in the peloton or maybe they should be off the front and they missed the break. And it's just, there's these little dramas every day 
in the Grand Tours. And when you really get immersed in it, it's just the most fascinating sport, I think. Oh, it's a beautiful sport. And you even say it's a beautiful and what's the other word that you use for the sport of bicycle? It's a preposterous sport. <laughs> it's so true because it's so difficult. It's so difficult and you're always one second away from just a horrible crash, right? Yeah. I mean, it could be a fan on the side of the road getting too excited and leaning forward to take a selfie. It could be the road narrowing or a roundabout or they're all packed so tightly together. And so it's just, they're riding at their limit for four to six hours a day in close proximity to other riders. It's just, I'm in awe of the mental and physical fortitude it takes to do the sport. Yeah. It makes me think of the 19, I believe it was 86 Tour de France with Greg LeMond and Bernardino. Bernardino. Thank you so much. I was blanking on the name. I have the picture in my bedroom at home of yeah. LeMond leading Eno up one of the big climbs. I think Sepkusa is probably the most likable American Grand Tour rider to win one of these races since LeMond, perhaps. Right. Now, I don't know if he'll break through because the Vuelta is not the Tour. And he's probably not going to win another one. But, you know, in terms of feel-good stories for Americans, it's hard to top what he's achieved over the last month. Right. I totally agree. It's really wonderful that this water carrier was in the position where he could then win and then had the strength to actually do it. Yes. And then I think that's the important point. His teammates did not let him win. He was pushed. Maybe they didn't go all out or maybe they didn't attack him as often as they could have. But they certainly put him to the test. And if he had been found wanting, probably one of them would have won. Well, that was very clear, I think, on that last mountain stage when he was the one who answered the call. That Sepp Kuss was the one who followed the leaders out and finished, I think, even another 10 seconds ahead of Vindegaard. Yeah, there were these two big mountain stages in the last week. One was the Anglaru, where I think he actually was attacked by Primoz Roglic. And if he had not been strong enough to stay within 20 or 30 seconds of him, he would have lost. Right. Let me ask you a question, because I've been following this fairly closely because I have been in Spain, and I have not heard very many people talk about it. But you do address it at the end of your article. What's your gut instinct on doping in cycling now? That's such a difficult question because it was so prevalent 20 years ago during the Armstrong era. And even for a while after the Armstrong era, people were using EPO. They were storing blood in their freezers and then injecting it later in the season. And there's improved testing, but the cheaters are always able to get ahead of the testing. And if you look at the times that the riders are doing now, they're comparable to the times that were being done in the Armstrong era. There is better equipment, there's better training, certainly there's better nutrition, but you have to sort of balance the fact that on one hand, these are extraordinarily amazing physical achievements with the reality that they may be cheating. There may be doping going on. There probably is doping going on. Right. And I guess the way I handle it is that, well, if everyone's doing it, then everyone's doing it. And if everyone's not doing it, that's great. But I try to admire the sport for what it is and the riders for what they're trying to accomplish. But you've got to keep one eye open to that possibility. Right, right. It really is, I think, a sad state of affairs. But doping has been in cycling for a long time, even before Lance Armstrong. It is, but it's far less acceptable today, I think, in the peloton, or at least in the public than it was. Once it was sort of widely accepted and there was this real strong culture called the omerta of speaking out right. against it and i think that has been weakened somewhat but you know if you're not inside of it it's really just impossible to know 
even yeah. like super well-informed journalists who are covering the sport, I don't think really have a good sense of whether it's really happening or not. Right. Which sort of bothers me. I almost wish that they'll lig it. Mm -hmm. And some of those guys would address these issues. I mean, I feel like bike talk is not really the place that we should be breaking yeah. news. Not that we are breaking news, but I wish that Lance Armstrong on the move or some of the other big bike podcasts would talk about this. And I don't hear them talking about it. Yeah, they really don't. The cycling podcast from time to time would sort of obliquely address it. And when Team Sky was having their issues, their Team Ineos now, they did some reporting on that. But the other ones yeah. are more promotional podcasts. Certainly, I wouldn't expect broadcasters to do it because they're trying to sell the drama of the sport. And on television, they're partners with the races. So I don't really expect them to go too heavy on that. But yeah, a lot of the other podcasts don't go. Lance Armstrong does have a podcast. He and Johan Bernil have some pretty good insights into the races, especially sure. Bernil, yeah. but they don't talk about doping for obvious reasons. Then they would have to I, revisit their own very dark past. But I almost wish that they would. I did hear an interview that they did about the Vuelta and they didn't mention it once. And I just feel like that's a missed opportunity. I agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. I would love to know what Johan Bernil really thought about the fact that three riders from the same team were one, two, three in a Grand Tour and won all right. three Grand Tours in the race with different riders. I mean, that frankly right. is suspicious. Yeah. And it's never been done before, I don't think, because Johan Bernil talks about that the Postal team won two of the three a couple of different times, but never all three. Yeah, team has never won all three. There have been Grand Tours where one team has gotten all three steps on the podium, first, second, third, but no team has ever won all three in the same season. Right, right. Well, your article, Eric, so beautifully captured the beauty and the preposterousness of bicycle racing. And I really enjoyed you reading it, and I really enjoyed meeting and talking to you. And how can our audience find you on Twitter or Instagram? I am on Twitter, X, or whatever it's called, at Space. And the website, again, is ARS, A-R-S, Technica, T-E-C-H-N-I-C-A. Eric Berger, thanks for writing your article about Sepp Kuss in the Vuelta a España, and thanks for being on Bike Talk. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thanks for helping me relive it. It really was just a very special three weeks to follow that story. I totally agree. You know, I don't know how many of our listeners watch bike racing, but if you've never seen it, Go on YouTube and click on some bike racing clips. They're really amazing. It's a beautiful sport. You ready for this next interview, Taylor? Yeah, let's go. Parking plans in New York, right? Open plans in New York City, Sarah Lynn, and we're going to talk about the end of parking mandates. It's about time. This is Sarah Lynn, the co-executive director of Open Plans. Hi, Sarah. Hi. And we have some big news Thursday for New York City. But do you want to also tell me what Open Plans is and what you do? Sure. We are a nonprofit based in New York City. We want to help people reimagine the way they experience New York City's streets and sidewalks and create a people-centered space rather than centered around the movement and storage of vehicles. And how long has Open Plans been around? About 20 years. And I've been there for two years. The big news is that New York City is eliminating parking mandates. And when I saw this on my social media feed, people were saying they were surprised, shocked even, to learn that New York City had parking mandates. Yeah, that's for sure. Pretty crazy in the most transit-rich city in the country that we would still have these. But, you know, they've been on the books since 1960s zoning code, and they're just still there. And so what is it? Because I am not really aware of many buildings in New York City that have their parking inside the building. 
Oh, there are a lot, actually. And the thing is that generally, because of the space premium in New York City, they have to build below ground, and that's incredibly expensive anywhere depending on the substrate and the location, anywhere from, let's say, $60,000 to $150,000 per parking space is what it costs to build a garage below ground. We know that when you're trying to create better transit, it really gets in the way to require parking. Primarily because when you provide parking for people in their building, they're more likely to own and drive a car. Then if they're driving somewhere, they want parking where they're going, right? So you continue to prioritize parking, continue to prioritize on-street parking, which makes it harder to put in bus lanes. We just had a major bus lane planned in the Bronx. The mayor said, no, kidding, we're not going to do it. Also, maybe they put some surface parking lots places and this pushes neighborhoods apart, makes it so you really can't walk where you want to go and you have to drive. And that just creates and perpetuates that vicious cycle. Of course, when people are in cars, they're not on public transportation. They're not paying to get on. They're not supporting it with ridership. It just makes it harder to continue to build out a system. Who drives in the city? Yeah. And that's the other thing is that a majority of New Yorkers do not own and drive cars. It's not a vast majority, but it is more than half. Look, there are people in every neighborhood who drive. In denser neighborhoods, it tends to be wealthy people who have literally said in public meetings, well, I need my car to go to my country house, right? So there's that segment of drivers. And then, like I said, in a lot of the outer boroughs, because of parking mandates, the neighborhoods really are car dependent and people do need cars to get around. But again, by continuing to plan and build for cars, we just perpetuate that cycle. So New York City is really not just the parts we think of. It's places where a lot of people do drive. Yeah, it is an incredibly big city, not just population-wise, but area-wise. And there are places in New York City that are single-family zoned. So it's a very diverse city in terms of infrastructure and the urban environment. Even in Manhattan, if you were to build a building, you would have to have... Oh, so no... Actually, in the 1980s, New York City was out of compliance with the Clean Air Act. And one of the things they did to get back into compliance was to eliminate parking mandates in the Manhattan core, which is basically below 110th Street. And then about 10 years ago, they also lifted parking mandates in Long Island City, another kind of very dense area. But yeah, above 110th Street, even in Manhattan, if you build a building, you have to provide parking. There are also some exemptions for affordable housing developments that are very close to trains. But even then, this is within half a mile of a train stop. Lots of people live just outside half a mile of a train stop who still consider themselves in transit-rich areas, and it doesn't apply to market rate housing in those areas. And so who's on either side of this issue? Well, we have a huge coalition to support lifting parking mandates citywide. There's housing groups, transit groups, environmental groups, even groups focused on quality of life for seniors, for kids. So very large coalition supporting lifting mandates. I would say that the people on the other side are people who feel that they need their cars and they're scared if we lift the mandates, they won't have the parking they need. And then it's the elected officials who listen to those people. To that point, though, we like to point out that we're not banning parking and we're not saying you can't build parking. We're not taking away any existing spaces, which I personally might like to. So we're letting the market work. And in areas that are car dependent, we expect that developers would still build parking and it won't impact those people negatively. So you said much as I would like to, what would you go further with when it comes to parking? We have 3 million free on-street parking spaces in the city. That's an estimate. Nobody knows for sure, but it's somewhere around there. Incredibly valuable public space that we are just giving away for free for people to store their private property. 
I'd love to see much more of that space either metered, so at least they're paying for it, or taken back for people for all the many uses we could use for it, including bike lanes, bus lanes, so we give people ways to get around and they don't need their cars. There's a lot of open streets in the city, and some people are lucky enough to see what it looks like when you take away some parking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're great. It's something that we at Open Plans have done a lot of work around supporting those open streets, but it's true. A lot of neighborhoods don't have them. What does Open Plans mean? Well, I think that we are just, again, focused on opening up the city to people and to allow for joyous public space that is open and vibrant, community-based. Kind of sounds like open source. (laughs) Yeah, we did early on before I was there long ago, do some work on open source data. And New York City actually has, because of that work, a fair amount of open data. I'm sure there's more we could do, but early on, they did a lot of work on open data. You mean open data having to do with? Maps of where things are. You can access 311 calls, sources of data that you can access in the city. And a lot of that was thanks to Open Plans advocacy about, like I said, 20 to 15 years ago. I'd like to follow your open plans. You do a lot that impacts what we're interested in, which is biking. Yeah, absolutely. Again, repurposing the street for people definitely (laughs) includes biking for sure. So definitely follow us. We are at Open Plans NYC on Twitter and at Open Plans on Instagram. Have we accomplished this or is there more work to do? Eliminating parking. (laughs) There is much more work to do. We've been working on this for two years, advocating for it, but this is really, in some ways, the first step. New York City is very complicated, so this now has to go through what's called ULERP, the Uniform Land Use Review Procedure, and it will go through an environmental review, which probably many people in the urban planning space have thoughts on. So it will go through a full environmental review, and then it will go through this very complicated process, which involves going to every single community board in the city. There are 59 for a review. Every borough board made up of community boards and others in each of the five boroughs. Every borough president, it will go to the city planning commission, and then it will go to the city council for a vote. So we expect it will take about a year to get through that process. And we expect that many council members will be pushing to scale back this reform So we are going to be full speed ahead with advocacy, working to keep this reform fully citywide and definitely are going to need advocates and supporters to make their voices heard all throughout this process. All right. You heard it here. This is Bike Talk. We're talking about eliminating parking minimums in New York City with Sarah Lind, co-executive director of Open Plans. How big is this? Is this historic? This is historic, for sure. These parking mandates all over the country were put in place, 1950s, 1960s. This is a time we had Robert Moses, we had people thinking cars were the future, the symbol of freedom. And we know now, obviously, that that is not true, both from a livability perspective, a climate perspective. This is a housing issue too, which we didn't even get into. And we've seen dozens of cities around the country of all shapes and sizes already eliminate these parking minimums. So for New York City to be behind on this is sad, but great that we're catching up with everyone else. And this could have, again, really dramatic impacts in the years to come on all of these important issues. You did mention we didn't touch on the housing issue. Yeah. So like I mentioned earlier, it's so incredibly expensive to build these parking spaces that that cost gets wrapped into the cost of the housing that's built along with them, really drives up rents, maybe as much as 17% research shows. And general low-income New Yorkers are less likely to own cars. So they end up subsidizing the cost of that parking space for more well-off people who own cars. Again, in affordable housing developments, 
This can often just mean a project dies on the drafting table. They really cannot afford to build these parking spaces and keep apartments at an affordable price. And we're in a housing crisis all over the country, but specifically in New York City, we have way fewer units than we need for our population. Rent is incredibly expensive. Many, many New Yorkers are rent burdened, meaning they pay more than 30% of their income on rent. Um, And this is a supply problem. We need more housing. And to the extent that parking mandates make it more difficult to build housing, which they do, they're impeding the process of solving this problem. So again, like I said, we talked about it's a transit issue, it's a livability issue, it's a housing issue, it's a climate issue, and we really need to get this done. It's amazing. We hear so much on Bike Talk. We've had Henry Gobar, who wrote Paved Paradise. We've had Donald mm-hmm. Shoup, who wrote The High Cost of Free Parking, the Parking Reform Network. We keep learning more and more on this show about how parking impacts everything. It sure does. Yeah. Henry Gerbar's book is great. Everyone should definitely read it. Paved Paradise. Yeah. Paved Paradise. Put up a parking lot. Yeah, sure did. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Sarah Lind, co-executive director of Open Plans for coming on Bike Talk and telling us about the news. Thank you so much for having me. You know, Nick, another one of the things that I realized when I was in Barcelona is they are removing free parking from the streets a certain percentage each year. And they're doing that in a lot of cities in Europe as a way of weaning people off of this idea of free subsidized car storage. Maybe that's how you have to do it, just gradually so people get used to it. Right, right. So yeah, we've had problems here with people not wanting to give up parking spaces for redesign to make streets safer in Western Massachusetts and Northampton. And also in Northampton, we have this amazing rail trail, 104 miles to the eastern part of the state to Boston. This next interview is with Craig De La Pena, who's been as responsible for that as anybody. He's the rail trail warrior of New England. And here's that interview. I'm here with Craig De La Pena. Yes, I'm a broker with the Murphy's Realtors. I have a team of realtors with me called Trailside Team. So it's called Trailside because you specialize in finding people homes near like the trail that we have right behind us, right? Yes, I specialize in the sale of houses near to rail trails, linear parks, greenways, other conservation lands. I'm the first realtor in the United States in that regard. Where we're at right now in Florence, Massachusetts, has already a great network. The bike trail built in Northampton and Florence was actually built and opened in 1984, and it was only about two miles. And that was one of the earlier municipally built rail trails in New England. It's about 52 miles right now, but it will be open from here to New Haven in a few more years, that's 84 miles, and from here to Boston, that is another 104 miles, all interconnected, and it will be intersecting with 18 other trails east of here, intersecting with the main east-west corridor from here to Boston. This is not an obscure coal mine branch line where no one lives. This is where the wealth was created in southern New England, where the big, huge mill complexes were. The mills have closed. They're all modern uses with modern small businesses or apartments or condos. And the trails are becoming bike trails interconnecting them. Nothing else like this is underway in North America. So I know that when an area is about to get transit and you bought some real estate along where the line was going to go, your property values would go up. Is that also going to happen that they're going to have a bike lane from here to Boston? 
Well, it's not a bike lane. Yes, the buyers of real estate now, this far into the 21st century, are the younger people. Back in the 90s, when I first got started in this realm, I used to market rail freight, and then I encountered some places where the people were pushing back against the idea. Back in the 90s, it was a newfangled idea, and there was extremist opposition in lots of places, and lots of places voted the idea down. But here we are, 25 years later, and it's been a generational shift, and the people buying houses today are not the people of the 90s. There are young people who think this is normal. This is what they want, the people were young people buying houses today. They largely grew up in neighborhoods with houses built in the 70s and 80s. And those neighborhoods, those big sprawling suburban places with meandering cul-de-sacs and no sidewalks and big lawns, they don't want to live in those places. They're very car-centric. They want to live in a place where the antique neighborhoods with the layout of grid pattern streets, sidewalks, porches, smaller houses on small lots with nearby things that are worth walking or biking to. They want to be able to have bikes integrated into their everyday lives. And here in Southern New England, 25 years from now, it'll be more like the Netherlands than the Netherlands is now. It's completely gonna change. I'm not an investor, but I've seen, even in the run-up to the Great Recession, you know, 15 years ago, I remember selling houses near rail trails to younger people who were treasuring the idea that they could live near the trail and bike to school, have their kids bike to school. And they were selling over list price back around 2007, 2008. I would say from a financial point of view that selling houses near trails, they're not gonna be worth a lot more, but they'll be worth a little bit more and they'll certainly be easier to sell than houses that are not near trails. We're in a seller's market right now, which means that we have a shortage of houses to buy, but an abundance of buyers. People have to move when they have to move, and if they can't buy something, they end up renting. That clogs up the rental market and complicates everything. Once we get to a more balanced market and people can be a little more picky and choosy about where they're going to be buying a house, then we're going to see the sort of separation near a trail or some kind of safe biking community. That will be the most attractive place to live and the most attractive places always sell faster than less attractive places. I talked to you recently about the picture Main Street redesign in Northampton on Main Street, where they're going to take away some parking spaces and make it better for biking and walking, and there's a constituency that's opposing it. I'll call them antis, I guess. They're not the virulent antis that I've met in my rail trail world. These are just mostly small business owners locally there that feel that they might be negatively impacted by this change. In the last couple of years, this whole exercise of many public meetings and discussions and websites set up with ability to comment back. And as this thing moves forward to begin construction, that's when there's been some awakening by folks opposed. And it's part of what's called three stages of truth. And the first stage, they'll laugh at your new idea and kind of like shoo-shoo it. But then the second stage is when people are aware that you're serious and it's actually going to happen. They become really hard-bitten opponents. But then the third stage of truth is who could be opposed to this idea? What's happening here is that the opponents are gearing up, even the proponents. Nobody's ever talked about, well, what's really going to happen when this mass central rail trail gets built out? 
the longest trail in New England that has 64% of the state's population within 10 miles of it. This is not just one of those lanes that's along a busy street. This is... No, this is a separated former steam railroad corridor. There is no nearby parallel road. So it's been largely dormant. We have this ability today to reassemble this corridor. Right now we're at 59 miles open. In two years, we're going to be 75 miles open. And it's going to be impactful. There's going to be four to five million users a year on it. Well, what does that mean to a place like Northampton, which is at the western end of this 100-mile trail and at the northern end of the longest interstate trail in the northeast, Northampton to New Haven, Connecticut? We're going to have a million people a year coming to town without their cars, but with bikes. And scheduled rail service in New Haven, Northampton, and Boston. This is going to also drive traffic. There's going to be so much demand that Amtrak will be putting baggage cars on these trains to bring people with their bikes into town here. And when you say it's going to drive traffic, not the car kind of traffic. This will bring so much more bike and pedestrian traffic into downtown Northampton. The complaints will evolve to, there's too many bikes. We need bike garages. There's actually a development that's going to be underway in about a year or 18 months from now where a commercial building currently is across the street from the Hotel Northampton. They are planning on putting a huge bike parking lot in there. In fact, the building is going to be 80 apartments or condos and it's going to be heavily bike themed. It sits right on this corridor. Like you said, it's going to be more like Amsterdam than Amsterdam is now. That is correct. What we're developing on this trail when it gets built out, we're going to have the longest QR code display on a rail trail in the United States. Over 150 QR code obelisks on this corridor that will call out not only railroad and industrial history, but local fun history that will go on to our Nowatic Network website. This is a way for families to have impactful journeys across the state with their kids. This is not really going to be for biking terminators to speed down the 100 miles in one day. No, this is going to be for families to bike two or three days. One of the earliest rail trails in New England was the Cape Cod Rail Trail. They put it on Cape Cod specifically knowing that was a place where people went their summer vacations. And they loved the idea of that bike path there so much. That was the seed from which all other rail trails in southern New England germinated from. And you have, all through your career, been fighting for every inch of rail trail that we've got. And you know how long it takes, and you can fight 20 years for 20 miles. And This uh, Mass Central Rail Trail is 42 years and counting right now. The opposition is still out there in some places. In fact, I'm still involved in four rail trail wars in Eastern Mass. Two of my, let's call them, battle-hardened veterans pro-trail people that were getting burned out and they wanted to quit. And I said, no, you can't quit. You're almost there. You just don't know it because you don't see what's going on sort of broadly a couple of towns away. You don't see what's going on nearby. So I said, I'll hire an assistant. What we'll do, we'll run a Google search every day and we'll look for keywords like bike path, bikeway, every kind of thing you can think of in this realm. We'll find every story. And we pull the stories that are most interesting. And then once a month, we'll pull them out and pull together anywhere from 16 to 30 stories with a thumbnail image, a headline, two sentences. If you like this realm, the story, where it's going, click here to read more. Back to the newspaper servers. You're describing your newsletter? Yeah. Yeah. 
And, and how do you get that? Well, you can just drop me an email, craigdp413 at gmail.com. The newsletter we started in 2017, it's like a tiger by the tail now. It's mainly stories about getting these rail trails developed? Yes. We don't create any content, rather. All we do is pull content from newspapers that we find on the web, and we make it available by referring you back to the newspaper servers. And so you're trying to uplift and, I guess, amplify other advocates. Speaking of that, you have your conference coming up. Yes, we have what we call a Golden Spike Conference. This is our ninth one. If you go to gs2023.org, you will see the Golden Spike Conference coming up on October 14th in Natick, about 20 miles out from Boston. Everybody's heard of the Golden Spike event in 1869 in Utah where the Transcontinental Railroad was joined together and had the Golden Spike Ceremony. Well, as a coincidence, that was the day the Massachusetts legislature green-lighted the charter for the Mass Central Railroad. The railroad that avoided every major city between Boston and Northampton, they went out of business fairly quickly, but we're reassembling the corridor, putting Humpty Dumpty back together again for 40 years. 104 miles long, we're right now about 90 miles in some kind of protected status owned by a state agency, a municipality, a local linear thinking land trust. We now have four linear thinking land trusts on this corridor. There's six in southern New England and eastern New York. This Golden Spike Award is like the Grammys or the Oscars yes. for advocates. Yes, I've got standing up right now over on my table 10 Golden Spike Awards that we're going to be passing out at the Golden Spike event in October. And these are all people who have worked tirelessly through the years. And there's a couple of posthumous awards for people that have done extraordinary things to get this network built. We cannot go through life here not acknowledging their work. It's the hardest thing they've ever done in their lives to build out this network. And sometimes they die before they see the trail built. This is extraordinary stuff. And wait till you read my memoir. You're going to be shocked. When's that come out? Maybe a year and a half from now. I've done 12 conferences altogether in my life. This will be the last one here. Next year, DOT is going to be doing them on the even-numbered years, and we'll pick it back up again on the odd-numbered years. What's to do after this? Well, we know that during the COVID, the DOT knew that in two years from now, we're going to be at 75 miles open. To get from 75 miles to totally open, they didn't even know if it was possible. Well, I knew there were several missing bridges, but they did a deep dive on the land ownership and where a corridor was washed away in hurricanes sometimes or bridges are missing. There's a thousand foot tunnel out there that's going to be renovated. Most people in the 21st century have no idea. They did this report and they came to the conclusion that yes, it can be reassembled. But, and here's the big but, we're not going to run a report on how much it's going to produce if it was reassembled how much it would be an impact for the communities along the way. In New England, there's so many rail trails under development. They're everywhere, but they're all pretty short. This is filling the gaps here now. And so we commissioned a report with a nationally known consulting firm who travels in this realm to find out, well, what would it be worth to Massachusetts and the communities along the way if a 100-mile trail was here, one that connects with 18 others along the way? So the report came out this summer, and it shows impactful numbers. It's going to be four to five million users a year, 
four to 500,000 overnight visitors. It's gonna produce about $200 million a year, each and every year for the communities along the way. Those are numbers of such great impact that DOT, under normal circumstances, DOT would be begging the executive higher-ups in the government to give them the green light to develop a plan to reassemble this remaining hard, heavy-lifting projects here, all these bridges. They haven't yet been green-lighted to green-light this effort. I think they know internally, but it hasn't been announced, hasn't been really put to a public test yet. Something like this will be very impactful. In our report that Kittleson and Company did, Kittleson, a national firm with an office in Boston, with a firm called Cambridge Econometrics, Cambridge England, not Cambridge, Massachusetts, they've produced this report and it's highly credentialed. The state's got to make the decision to move it forward. That's one of the reasons we're having the conference in Natick this year, because there's a lot of stuff going on in that Metro West area in bike trail development. And so we think that the conference will be a nexus of advocates and state representatives and state senators coming together. One of our speakers is Michelle Sicola, who is the leader of the Trails Caucus in the Massachusetts State House, and she's going to be talking about what's going on there. And just this past week, the Massachusetts Office of Outdoor Recreation was stood up with a new director. This is a brand new office and is set up to accelerate the development of outdoor recreation in Massachusetts. And what is the elephant in the room in terms of outdoor recreation is really walking and biking trails here. The densest network in North America going to real functioning industrial places. We call them gateway cities here in Massachusetts. The interesting thing about Kittleson's report is that when they did a deep dive examination of all the communities along the way, they discovered that there's several gateway towns along this corridor, not big cities with the old industrial presence, but towns. And these towns were factory towns in, in a large regard. And so these places are not really as in the 21st century, shall we say, as other places that are more robust. And once this trail gets built out, a long trail like this, these places will be renaissance. They'll be restored. They won't be the sort of threadbare nest. They will become functioning places that attract young people who want to start up their business or buy a house in a place near a rail trail that's growing on the upside of things. And so this will be the transformative effect of the rail trail on these small and forgotten places. It's a great vision and it's happening and yes. it's becoming reality. So Golden Spike this October? October 14th, Saturday. If you go to gs2023.org, you can book in. It's an Eventbrite booking protocol there. We're going to have a fun time. There's a bunch of walking and biking tours that afternoon after the speak time. Actually, Mass Bike is going to be hosting a post-conference debrief, they call it, after the event at the AmVets bar facility there. So people can have a hoist a beer or two after, and it'll be a memorable event. It's going to be a big deal. Well, thanks, Craig De La Pena of Florence, Massachusetts. Thank you for coming here this afternoon, and look forward to seeing you at the conference if you can make it. Sounds great. That's great.
Craig De La Pena, the Rail Trail Warrior of Western Massachusetts. I hopefully will be going to the Golden Spike Conference in October and seeing the Rail Trail advocates being honored, and I'll bring some sound from there if I can. Great. Like us on Facebook or like us on Instagram or Twitter or whatever. Check out bikeTalk.org and get in touch and send us an email. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Push on a pedal, push on a pedal, get your heart started. Push on a pedal, push it down and up again. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals. And ride it all around, ride it all around. Get on your bike, sit on the seat, put your feet on the pedals, and ride it all around, ride it all around. Thank you.